Everyone lives for something. Uh, we, we have to. We have to have a reason to get up in the morning. Something makes life worthwhile for us. Now, whether we or not we've identified what that something is, we are, whether we acknowledge it or not, living for something. And if I can put this longing for something in spiritual terms, I think I'd put it like this. It's because we feel we need, and indeed we do need, two things. We need salvation, and the need to find what life is about is an attempt to find salvation, not in the way Christians would define salvation, but salvation all the, time, all the same. It's a, a need to be saved from a meaningless life. And secondly, we need joy. Not just passing happiness, but a deep satisfaction and peace and delight. All human beings want that. I, I love this autobiography, um, uh, John McEnroe. I've quoted from it before. Um, it's called Serious, because of course he spent most of his tennis career saying you cannot be serious. And it's a great autobiography because it is so honest. Uh, it, it won't surprise you to know that John McEnroe lived for tennis. And not, but not just for tennis, uh, but to be number one in the sport. The thing that drove him to get out of bed in the morning and to hit thousands, uh, probably millions of tennis balls was the desire to be the top, of, the top tennis player in the world. That's what he lived for until he achieved it. And then he realised it wasn't enough. Listen to his words here. On October the 1st, 1984, I was standing in the Portland airport waiting to board a flight to LA for a week off. And suddenly I thought, and this is so McEnroe, listen to this, suddenly I thought, I'm the greatest tennis player who ever lived. <laughs> I'm the greatest tennis player who ever lived. Why am I so empty inside? Except for the French and one tournament just before the Open in which I'd been basically over tennis, I won every tournament I played in 1984. 13 out of 15. 82 out of 85 matches. No one had ever had a year like that in tennis before and no one has since. But it wasn't enough. The feeling had been building up for a while. I'd been number one for four years and I'd never felt especially happy. See, McEnroe reached his goal and it left him empty. And so you'll see, if ever you read this book, that he begins to look for other things to fulfil him. He looks for love. And he met uh, the actress Tatum O'Neill. Uh, listen to how he reflects on his relationship and marriage to her. Was I looking for the love of my life? I don't know. I was searching for something. In a sense, finding her then was a matter of timing as much as anything else. I was just sick of feeling empty. I wanted something more than money out of all I'd accomplished. Now, you see, McEnroe does that all the way through the book. He's got this great concern about dying and his good friend Vitas Gerolaitis dies, age 40, while still a, t a tennis pro. Um, he's worried every time he goes on an aeroplane. He just escapes death because he's not on the Concorde crash in Paris. It's a remarkable thing. And as I read this book, I wanted the chance to meet John McEnroe so I could tell him what I thought was the answer to life. But, you know, if that were to happen, if I were to meet John McEnroe at Wimbledon next year and I'll be applying for tickets in the public ballot, so hopefully I'll be there, and if he was just walking down the, the street at, at Wimbledon and I met him, and if I had the chance to tell him what I, what I believe life was all about, having read this book, do you know what I think he'd say? I think he'd say, no, God's not the answer. See, I've tried God and it doesn't work. Listen to these words um, that he writes in the book. My parents were church-going Catholics. My brother and I had all been baptised and confirmed. 
and I'd gone to Mass every week until I was 18, even though I'd decided for myself that organised religion was a sham and that God, if he existed, must be deaf, dumb and blind. Now you see, like so many people, McEnroe has experienced religion, but he's never met Jesus. And I guess many here won't be at all surprised to hear me say that, that there is a difference between a religion and relationship with Jesus. But before you switch off and think, oh, this is for all the people who don't normally come to church, and it is, if there's anyone like that here, welcome. But before those of you who come every week switch off, listen carefully to this, because what I'm about to say will impinge on all here this evening. Even if we believe that God is the answer to life, it is very easy to try to repair my relationship with God with the wrong things and in the wrong way. Even if I realise that religion is not the answer, my heart will naturally be driven back to doing religious things because that's what we do. And the desperate thing is we can appear to be doing the right things as evangelical Christians, and still be missing out. For as we say, a miss is as good as a mile. Now we saw that all too painfully last night in the Rugby World Cup. You can be so close and yet you can miss out. Now whether or not Mark Cueto's touchdown was was a try or not has already been discussed to death in the media, and I suspect we haven't heard the last of it yet. Now, I'm not going to add to that discussion, but that moment is a brilliant example of how being just a few inches out means you're out. And if in a game of rugby last night we thought that mattered, and I know some did as they were screaming at the television, asking the judge to listen to them, even if we think that matters in rugby, be sure it matters all the more in the game of life, and in our attempt to find salvation and joy, you can appear to be so close as evangelical Christians, and yet you can be out. And that's what we find in our passage this evening. See, last week we saw Jesus and his disciples having a ball, feasting with tax collectors and sinners. And do you remember how much the Pharisees hated seeing them do that? Now we discover the Pharisees weren't the only ones to take exception to the behaviour of Jesus' disciples. Look at verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? John's disciples, the disciples that is of John the Baptist, were with the Pharisees on this one, you see. Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? Why are they feasting and not fasting? And that's the first point if you're taking notes. Feasting and not fasting? Well, Jesus answered in verse 15. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? It is a remarkable response. Jesus says, my disciples don't fast, they don't mourn, because I'm with them. And at a glance, those words appear to be the words of a complete megalomaniac. Now, the story is told of a three and a half year old little girl whose mum was taking her to visit her grandmother at an old people's home. And on the way, she remembered how many of the old folks had been so happy to see her the last time that she went there. And so when she arrived, she burst into the day room, flung her arms open wide and with a big smile on her face said, I'm here! As if her presence made everything okay for for everyone else. Now we can can forgive that sort of behaviour from a a three and a half year old precisely because it's naive and, and innocent. 
But for an adult to be so full of themselves, why should you be so happy? Because I'm here! Yet that is exactly what Jesus is saying. That's what he does here. How can you fast? How can you mourn? How can you do anything else less than party when you're with me, says Jesus? That sort of statement would be a great surprise to my friends who are not Christians. Would it be to yours as well? Maybe it would be to you. Maybe you've just come along and you're not really convinced about Christian things yet and you, you can't believe that Jesus is saying, oh yeah, I'm the reason to have a party. When I speak to my friends, it becomes obvious they believe that the last thing Jesus brings is joy. If I were to play one of those word association games with them and say Christianity, party would be the last word that they would think of. But look, Jesus believes he is the one in whom we find salvation and therefore joy. Verse 15 is a remarkable statement. It is actually a claim to be no less than God himself. See, if you chase up the the references to fasting in the Old Testament, you'll find there's a few different reasons for engaging in, in that discipline. But one of the main reasons was to mourn our dislocation from God, to grieve that our sin has kept us from God. Isaiah wrote these words, Your iniquities have separated me Uh, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. See, sin is so serious because it it separates us from God. Many times when I've spoken to people about God, they've said to me, uh, they feel as if their, their prayers just bounce off the ceiling. They feel that God is far away, that he won't hear them. Isaiah says, our sin does that. And that should grieve us. It should bother us to be separated from the very one who makes sense of life. It should bother us to be dislocated from the one who can give me joy in life. Of course that should grieve us. So fasting, accompanied by weeping and confessing of sin, was an expression of a very real need to restore that broken relationship. It was a desire to be close to God again. And that's a good desire. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament, to fast. It's a good desire to want to be relocated with, with God, to, to get our relationship back again. It's what we're made for. As Augustine famously prayed, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. We should want to restore, to repair, to relocate our relationship with the living God. So why didn't Jesus' disciples fast? Jesus' answer is remarkably simple, yet astonishingly powerful. Verse 15, there is no need to fast when you're with Jesus because then you are with God himself. When you're friends with Jesus, you don't need your relationship with God restored because your relationship with God is restored. And for the disciples, God was with them not only spiritually but physically. So no need to fast and mourn. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? Now make no mistake, this was a claim by Jesus to be God. It's in calling himself the bridegroom, Jesus was taking for himself a title the Old Testament gives to God. Uh, Keep your finger in in Matthew and turn with me to Isaiah 62, if you will. Uh, The first of those two readings that Graham read for us earlier. Page 748 is the page number if you want to find it. Uh, Isaiah 62. And we'll see how this phrase, the bridegroom, that Jesus attributes to himself, 
is none less than a, a claim to be God. Isaiah 62, it's a great chapter. It's a chapter which promises salvation and joy. Isaiah looks forward to a fantastic day when God's people will, as you see at the end of verse 1, know salvation. It's a day when, verse 4, God's people won't feel deserted and desolate, but they will be called, you see it there, Hepzibah, which means my delight is in her. And then it goes on to explain that, verse 5. My delight is in her as a bridegroom delights and rejoices in his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Now do you see? See who the bridegroom is? God is the bridegroom. The bridegroom who delights in his bride, who are his people bringing them salvation and joy. So as we turn back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, as Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, he is claiming to be God and claiming to bring salvation to his people, restoring our relationship with God. Now do you see, if fasting and mourning was about uh, sin, the sin that dislocated us from God, there's no need to fast once our relationship is restored. And here's the most crucial thing to grasp. To continue to fast when the bridegroom has come is to ignore the one who can repair our relationship. I don't need to do that anymore. So if I continue to do it, I'm saying, I don't want the thing that you've given me, God. I'm going to do it my way. Uh, My son Joshua has a a great little Thomas the Tank Engine train set. I brought one part of it with me today. It's fantastic. I love it. I don't know whether he... No, he does love it, but I really love it. And I went into the playroom uh, playroom a few months ago and there was Joshua trying to make it work and getting very upset and frustrated because he couldn't make it work. Well, he's only four. It's okay. He didn't know how it worked. I'm 44 and I saw instantly how how it could work. There was a piece missing. So I found the piece and I told him where to put the piece. But he's four and he thinks he knows everything. And he refused to take the missing piece. And he was sure that he could make it work. And he even got annoyed with me for suggesting that the piece I had in my hand would fix the problem. All the while I knew that it wouldn't work without this one piece. But he wouldn't take it from me. And he wouldn't allow me to put it in place. He was determined to keep trying himself. Now, it's only a Thomas the Tank train engine. It doesn't matter that much, but when you're doing that with God, it is a very serious thing. And that is what is happening here with the disciples of John the Baptist. You see, even the phrase says it all, verse 14, they were disciples of John. But John pointed to Jesus. They should never have been disciples of John. They should have been disciples of Jesus. But here they were living as if Jesus had never come. As we'll see next week in verses 16 and 17, they were living as if the old order was still in place. But Jesus says, and we'll see it more next week, you can't put the old and the new together. They don't go. They continued to fast out of concern to repair their relationship with God, fasting and mourning, yet here was Jesus. Here was the missing piece. Here was the one who could repair their relationship with God, but they didn't turn to him, they continued fasting. Do you see the problem? And there are plenty of people around today who make exactly the same mistake. 
Oh yeah, people who are bothered by their sin, people who want to restore their relationship with God. If you said to them, were you bothered about that? They'd say, yes, 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 I am. People who know about Jesus, people who've even met Jesus, but people who are still trying to do something themselves to repair and restore their relationship with God. They think they can do it. And the shocking thing is, even those of us who call ourselves committed Christians we'll always be tempted to do just that. See, we can be just as guilty as others of relying on our religious observance to make us right with God. Oh, McEnroe had seen it and he'd rejected it. But we can be just as guilty of it. Here at Christ Church, we can be just like John's disciples, having been pointed to Jesus, but actually trusting in something else. See, I think many evangelicals who say they are trusting in Jesus alone, but who functionally are trusting in their performance. It's very subtle, which is why we have to think so carefully about it. You may get, uh, you may get justification by faith right on your exam paper, as it were, but day by day you actually live as if your relationship with God depends on what you do. Let me ask you, why do you think you're acceptable to God? Because you've come to church today? Because you've said your prayers? Because you've read your Bible? Because you shared your faith with someone? Or maybe it's better to put it this way. Do you think God loves you more because you've done those things? Because you've done those good things like reading the Bible and praying and evangelism and fasting? Uh, years ago, Alas came to see me and she said, she said this. She said, I can't pray anymore. I said, why not? Because I've been so bad, she said. And then she told me what she'd done. And then she went on to say, so you see, I've been so bad, I can't come to God in prayer anymore. And I said to her, Kirsty, what's the gospel? I asked her, because she looked at me a bit blank, and I asked her, will will you go to be in the presence, when when you die, why will you go and be in the presence of God? And she said, because Jesus died for me, to forgive all my sin. And I said, and did he die for the sin that you've just told me about? And she said, yes. And then I said, so why do you think that you cannot come to God in prayer now then, Kirsty? Now, do you see, she could pass the exam question. She knew the answer. In her head, Kirsty knew that she was acceptable to God because of Jesus' death, but she was living as if her relationship with God depended on her. She is an evangelical Christian who is relying on her goodness to get her right with God, really. And there are many like her in churches like this who are relying on their performance. And it is desperate because you will not have the joy that Jesus offers you. You will be desperately trying to do enough to be good enough. And you will say to me, no, I believe and I trust in Jesus, but actually, functionally, day by day, you really believe deep down that it's about how good you've been or whether you've done enough religious type things. Oh yeah, evangelical religion type things. But listen, your performance will not give you salvation. Only Jesus can give you that. And this is the really sad thing. Your performance robs you of joy, of the deep satisfaction and peace and delight that you get only in Jesus. 
And it does seem to me there are a lot of Christians who are around, our kind of Christians, who don't have that joy. There might be all sorts of reasons for that. But is this one of them? Because you'll never be sure that you've done enough today or that you won't blow it tomorrow if you're trying your hardest all the time. Do you have the joy? See, with Jesus, it's feasting, not fasting. And secondly, we see in this passage, with Jesus, it's laughing, not mourning. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 15. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? But being a vicar, I, I, have to, I have been to more than my fair share of weddings and I'm not complaining, it's brilliant. I'm going to do one next weekend. Down there they are. As the vicar, I get the best view. I get an unhindered view of the bride walking up the aisle. I'll see you next week, Catherine, walking up the aisle. I get a, a better view as she's walking up the aisle than even Stewie will. He'll be craning his neck around trying to see her and there she'll be coming up the, up the aisle. And I want to tell you, I have not yet seen a bride that is not glowing and radiating joy and happiness as she walks towards, not me, but her groom. <laughs> the bride doesn't just smile, it's as if joy and happiness oozes out of her. She's not putting it on, she can't stop it. It's as if this this well of delight is in her that she cannot keep in. Why is she so happy? She's so happy because she's loved, because the love of her life is waiting for her, because finally they're going to be together. This is the happiest day of her life. There is simply no place for weeping or mourning at a wedding. Of course, there is one thing that's always in tears, and that's the cake. But apart from that, there is no... Sorry, that's an old gag, but I thought I'd slip it in. But you see, that is verse 15. Yet you catch up, you'll be with me in a moment. But you see, that is verse 15. That is verse 15. Now, they've only just got it over here. Now, come on, catch up. This is an important point. Verse 15, the cake's in tears. Yeah, okay, yeah. Verse 15. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? If you haven't got it yet, just, I'll explain it afterwards, okay? Just, let's move on now. Jesus says, when you've met me, why would you want to mourn? When you've met me, you've met God. When you've met me, you discover what life is all about. When you meet me, you have the love of your life. When you meet me, you know that you are loved unconditionally. Meeting me is the happiest day of your life. Only Jesus can give you that. Or you can look for it in other things, as McEnroe did. Of course you can. But even if you're happy, and please don't mishear this, there are many unbelievers that are happy. But even if you're happy, you have not yet discovered ultimate joy because you have not yet met the one that you were made for. You cannot have discovered the ultimate meaning in life until you've met Jesus. But meet Jesus and there is laughter and not mourning. And that is brilliantly demonstrated in the story that follows in verse 18. Now before we look at the story, let me explain why I think, why I've made this link with the story in verse 18. What we're going to do this week is see, look look at verses 14 and 15 and then one of the two stories that follows and next week we're going to look at verses 16 and 17 and the other story of one of the two stories that follows. Uh, Let me show you why. It will help you, I think, to read Matthew's Gospel to see how he constructs his Gospel. Uh, We saw this, actually, this time last 
year when we were looking through chapter 8 of Matthew's Gospel, but I don't expect you uh, to remember it. Uh, You see, Matthew, it appears, records a section of Jesus' teaching and then follows it with two stories to illustrate that teaching. Come back with me to chapter 8, and it's very clear there. We saw this last year, but just flip back a page. See, when we were looking at this a year ago, Matthew 8, verse 20, Jesus said, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's a bit of teaching. And then in verse 24, the story that follows we see that Jesus is in a boat with nowhere to lay his head. See, Jesus was sleeping in a boat. Nowhere to lay his head. He wasn't in his bed, bed, comfortable. Nowhere to lay his head. And we see the same thing in verse 21 and 22. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead follow their own dead. Uh, So here is uh, Jesus talking something about death, a little bit of teaching about the dead following their own dead, burying their own dead. And then what does he do in the story after that? He takes us to the place of death. Verse 20, they arrived in the region of the Gadarenes. Two demon-possessed men were coming from the tombs, from the place of death, you see. He he takes us to to a, a graveyard. Now, now that's what's going on in chapter 8. And now as we turn back to chapter 9, we see the same here in this chapter. Verses 14 and 15 are dealing with the issue of fasting and mourning. Verses 16 and 17 are dealing with the issue of old and new, the old and new covenants. And then in, in the bit that goes from verses 18 to 26, Matthew records two stories that illustrate Jesus' teaching. Next week, we'll see the healing of the woman and that fills out and explains verses 16 and 17. But now, having looked at Jesus' teaching and, and about fasting and mourning in verses 14 and 15, Matthew takes us to a place of mourning. And as we look at this story, it, it's a brilliant, vivid demonstration that with Jesus, there is always laughing, not mourning. See, so look at verse 18. It is heart-wrenching. A Jewish ruler knelt before Jesus and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Is there a sadder situation than the death of a child? I can't think of one. I have taken the funerals of a few children and I've never experienced a more painful and desperate situation. But verse 19, as Jesus goes with this ruler to this, see this little girl, we'll see the difference Jesus makes in the most desperate situation that you can think of. Now, as we would expect, he discovered a desperate scene. Verse 23, flute players and and women wailing at the top of their voices. It's not the way we mourn in Britain, but we're not totally unfamiliar with it. Television news bulletins of death and funerals in, in Middle Eastern countries give us an insight into this scene, wailing and howling, beating the breast. We've seen it, haven't we? Now, in verse 23, the flute players and and the noisy crowd, as they're described, were professional mourners, all part of the funeral expenses. See, apart from the coffin, the hearse and the flowers, he'd also hire a couple of flute players and at least one professional wailing woman to set the tone, to help you mourn, to get the tears going. And that's why Jesus told them to go away. See, go away, verse 24. We don't need professional mourners anymore. The girl's not dead but asleep. But, end of verse 24, they laughed at him. 
Is it any wonder? They're professional wailing women. They'd been to plenty of funerals before. They knew the girl was dead. Well, they wouldn't have been there. Well, look, they may have laughed, but you can be sure that that wasn't the last laugh that day. Look at verse 25. After the crowd had been put out, he went in and took the girl by the hand and and she got up. And she got up. Were you amazed when when, when Graham read it? Oh, yeah, that's what Jesus does. He, He heals people and... Raises the dead, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us the next bit. He, a little girl was dead, got up. How astonishing is that? When I take funerals and see the deep sorrow of mourners, in fact, the, the breaking hearts in front of me, I would do anything to be able to make it better, to take the pain away. I can't do that. But, writes Don Carson, when Jesus confronts death, death is the loser. It is stripped of its power and reduced to sleep. He brings salvation and joy. When Jesus came into this situation, everything changed. Jesus turns mourning into laughter, do you see? Imagine being invited to that funeral, but arriving late, maybe got stuck in traffic or something. Imagine turning up moments after this event. The wailing women have gone, they've been sent away, and the flute people, there's none of them left anymore. As you arrive at the front door, not only is there no sound of mourning, no wailing woman, but you can actually hear laughter inside. And some of the laughter is the infectious giggle of a little girl. Well, for a moment, you check the invite, and you think, I've come to the right house. But you've already rung the doorbell, and somebody opens the door, and you soon realise, yes, you're in the right place, although as you walk in, you can't believe your eyes. The girl that you'd gone to mourn is running around, larger than life, playing with her Barbie as if nothing had ever happened. And the mood in the house? Astonishing joy. You turn to one of the guests dressed in black and you you ask what's happened. And with a big grin on his face, he looks at you and he says just one word, one word. He says, Jesus. That's what's happened, Jesus. Jesus. See, when Jesus comes, there's no place for mourning. Verse 15, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? No mourning, just rejoicing. He is the bridegroom. He is the Lord. He's dealt with sin. And raising the little girl shows that he is the bridegroom, the Lord Almighty, for no one else could do that. Raising the little girl shows that he has dealt with sin. For James writes, when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. So there is a link between sin and death in the Bible and when Jesus wants to show that he can deal with sin, he deals with death. And raising the little girl shows the change that Jesus brings. He brings laughter, not mourning. In Jesus, my relationship with God is restored. Most of you here know that. But listen, I don't need to do anything I don't need to do anything to get right with God. I don't need to fast to get right with God. I haven't said tonight that there's no place for fasting in the Christian life, but listen, I don't need to fast to get right with God. Now we've got to ask ourselves, have we got that? We don't do religious things to restore our relationship with God. 
I don't read the Bible and pray to get closer to God in the sense of getting right with God. I read the Bible and pray to get to know God better, to get closer to him in that sense. I pray because I want to talk to God, just as a bride wants to be with her groom and wants to know him better. Hence the second half of verse 15. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Oh yes, when Jesus was taken to be crucified, of course the disciples fasted and mourned. They mourned because they knew it was their sin that had put, them on the cro- put, put him on the cross. And at one level, we should feel that same sadness as we take bread and wine this evening. It was my sin that put him there. That should sadden me. In that sense, I mourn. And when Jesus was taken from them, they were... They were devastated because they were no longer in the physical presence of the Lord. And yes, while we've been given the Holy Spirit, and that's wonderful, we should, like them, long to be with Jesus, for he is our salvation and our joy. And so as we take this bread and wine this evening, we are looking forward, longing for the day when we will be in the physical presence of Jesus. We ought to have that longing because whatever we've got now, even though we've got salvation, we haven't got full salvation yet in that sense. We should want it. I want to be with him. But look, if you've never known that longing to be with him, and if you've never known that joy of forgiveness then you are trusting in something else for salvation and joy or you don't understand the salvation that you have. And that's really sad. For you see, everyone lives for something. But only living for Jesus will give me salvation and joy and real satisfaction. Him alone. Well, let's turn to pray. In a moment, Ed will lead us in our prayers. But now, just a moment of silence as we think about all that we've heard. And a little time for us to make our own response to the living God. Just some some silence now as we respond to him appropriately.